0: Okay, well, thank you very much for coming tonight. Uh, we have a treat. We have one of the treasures of Britain. Not oh. the treasure. <laughs> Dr. I think that's hard to believe. Fiona Godley, who is editor-in-chief of the BMJ and acting chief executive of the BMJ. Briefly. Is that correct? Yeah. I first met um, Fiona 25 years ago. Yeah, I won't bore you, but one of the characters who was there was the headbanger, Fiona's predecessor. Richard Smith, one of the most charismatic, one of the most interesting people that you could ever meet. And we were in a, in a uh, consensus of people looking at peer review, and it was called Loch <coughs> And that's where I met Fiona, and we got interested in peer review, and we did a few things together. And ever since then, she has just grown and grown and grown. And I think that the most important thing that she has done so far—that's my own personal opinion—as editor-in-chief of the BMJ is the open data campaign. And she's followed, I think, in the, in the footsteps of one of the great recesses, Hugh Clegg. You knew I was going to ask. You, you know, we get, get saying. Hugh Clegg once said, "If something is in the public interest, it should be in the public domain, and it should be kept there." And
1: that's exactly what Fiona has done. So ladies and gentlemen, Fiona, go Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom. Well, it goes without saying that Tom has been an enormous influence on my life. Um, is this working? Can you hear a small room? I'm sure I can... <laughs> As have other people in this room. And um, all of us in our careers, you don't necessarily know where you're heading. Um, and certainly I didn't. And a lot of the... Directions you take are, are, are down to the people you meet and people you learn to admire, and um, the people who, who welcome you into their worlds. And Ian is one of those, and Jeffs here, and many people um, around the world. And Tom has certainly been one of those, and who has um, taken us, I think, to the edge of our own sanity and our own um, ability to uh, respond to the demands of the work involved. And Tom has been a real. Um, a real um, <coughs> exemplar of, of devotion to, uh, to this important cause. So I'm very honoured to be with you today. Um, I thought it might be useful uh, for those of you who don't know the BMJ very well, just to give you a quick um, discussion, a, a bit of overview about the BMJ. It's been around for a long time. It's changed rather a lot in the last um, nearly 200 years, 118, 90 years. We have a, a mission, as anyone would expect, Um, We want to be the world's most influential medical journal. We may not be the biggest or the the highest impact factor, but we do want to change things. Uh, We want to be the change we want to see in the world. Um, And um, we believe in integrity, independence, partnership with patients, evidence-based, answering questions and questioning answers. So there's a kind of skeptical (coughs) core within the BMJ editorial team. We want to challenge the status quo and we have begun increasingly to campaign, and our, our aim is to do that in the public interest. So, although we are an owned biomedical doctor's organisation, we do not speak for doctors, we speak in the public interest. Um, we have a number of tools at our disposal. Um, so, we have a, at our disposal a number of tools to try to uh, do what we aim to do. And along the top, you'll see research, education, news, and views campaigns. And um, just on the research front, uh, our research is open access, open peer reviewed. Um, and uh, we try and encase it in comment, opinion and also increasingly in visual summaries and this is one of the ones particularly proud of. We've got a fantastic chap from Will Style Timmins who does these infographics. This looks very complex but it's called a graphical overview of evidence reviews and, and the idea is that um, one will eventually be able to slot in uh, data um, information from individual trials and um, participant characteristics study quality, study findings and results. So it's a kind of way of Uh, displaying complex data, which you might like to look at. So it's called Gopher, Graphical Overview for Evidence Reviews. So um, on the research front, we still think there's a a way to go to improve the presentation. But on the campaign front, um, we have become, as I say, a campaigning journal. And um, the sort of permission, if you like, historically for us to do this, stems back to the editor in the Victorian age, Ernest Hart, who um, in the... In those days, um, babies were being, illegitimate babies were being farmed out to uh, so-called foster parents who were being uh, paid for taking on board these babies that in fact were just leaving them out in the cold and killing them or or letting them die. And it was a big issue in Victorian uh, England. And Ernest Hart, as editor of the BMJ, uh, thought that it was something the BMJ should have a view on. And he advertised in some newspapers as a pretend uh, father of an illegitimate child. Um, in order to attract these foster parents and to identify um, what was going on. And as Tom says, that permission to campaign uh, continued through into the 40s and 50s and 60s through through Hugh Clegg, who is the grandfather of Nick Clegg, um, who said this, a subject that needs reform should be kept before the public until it demands reform. So this is, is our uh, in our DNA, we feel, and it gives us permission to do things that other journals may uh, not want to do or may not feel they like have permission to do. I mentioned the campaigns, you'll see at the top there at a glance, better evidence uh, is, is the one I'm going to be talking about in relation to the work that you're all doing. So, um, why do we need better evidence? Well, Doug Altman in a really iconic editorial back in 1994 talked about the scandal of poor medical research um, in, the, in it he said, what should we think about a doctor who uses the wrong treatment, either willfully or through ignorance, or uses the right treatment wrongly? Most people would agree that such behaviour was unprofessional, arguably, unethical, and certainly unacceptable. What then should we think about researchers who use the wrong techniques, either willfully or in ignorance, use the right techniques wrongly, misinterpret their results, report their results selectively, cite the literature selectively, and draw conclusions, unjustified conclusions? We should be appalled. Uh, and uh, it was called, we need better ev- less evidence, better evidence, and evidence for the right reasons, or research, sorry, less research, better research, and research for the right reasons. And these were some of the problems with the evidence that Doug identified, and some others have identified, a- adding to those asking the wrong questions, not involving patients, wrong techniques, wrong analysis, misinterpretation of results, manipulation to get the desired answer. Overstating the conclusions, selective reporting of benefits and harms. Poor quality peer review, these are additional to some of the things that Doug identified. Lack of engagement with post-publication peer review is an issue that we as editors fret about. So once you've published your work, do you engage with the reader if they criticise you? Hidden data, I'll talk more about that. Financial academic vested interests. Positive publication bias fabrication, falsification, and plagiarism, which is the, the um, standard definition of fraud, and regulatory failure. And the reason these are a worry is because they cause research waste and clinical harm. And uh, Ian and Paul Glazeu, publishing in The Lancet in 2009 and subsequently, have looked at the four, and possibly more, but four in this article, stages of research. Um, and the result of these different types of waste leads, in their estimate, to 85% of research effort Wasted over a billion, hundred billion dollars of research funding uh, per year, or, or research effort per year. Um, so this is a major problem. We're, we're, there's research being done that is not achieving what we would all wish it could re- receive, achieve. And just to talk about hidden data, this is a, again, um, what I would consider an iconic piece of work published in the BMJ in 2010 about the drug reboxetine. And um, these authors who were based at ICWIG in Germany, which is the, the German equivalent of NICE, uh, were asked whether they should fund or provide in insurance in Germany for drug reboxetine on, on the public purse. And uh, they felt sure that there was data that they were not being shown. So they asked the manufacturer for their data, and Pfizer, who produced this drug, which is an antidepressant that um, was being used as such, um, said that they had provided all the data. And said, well you clearly haven't, we've we've got, we're aware that you haven't. And eventually they persuaded Pfizer by saying that if you don't give us your data, we won't allow your drug to be made available on health insurance. So Pfizer presented them with the data and it turned out that three quarters of it had never been published before. Um, And when these authors did the review of the effect of combining the published and the unpublished data, you can see the results. So in each case we've got remission published, unpublished, total, published, unpublished, total. And then here, the reverse is the withdrawal for adverse effects. So, published a nice result. Rabox better. Unpublished, no result. Total, no effect. Response, same again. And then withdrawal, the reverse, for the adverse effects. So no difference in the published data, but with the unpublished data and the total combined, the drug not only ineffective, but also harmful. So this is, I think, a, an example beautifully illustrated of of a problem that we know to be pretty endemic throughout clinical trials, but also specifically um, in industry-funded trials. So uh, the idea of simply doing uh, meta-analysis based on the published results is obviously long gone as something we should accept, but I think often um, there's much more hidden data, even if you start trying to look, if you don't really dig, you'll miss out a great deal. I was very fascinated about this case because it turned out when it was published that this drug had been used in animal studies. Because it was thought to be so effective in humans, it was used as animal studies for the animal model for antidepressants. Um, So uh, the way they test it is is whether the rat struggles uh, or whether it swims, a swim test and a struggle test if you hold the rat by its tail. Um, And uh, when these data came out, the animal modelists have had to change the drug that they use because <laughs> uh, in reverse, if you see know what I mean, it, it's not really translatable to humans. Um, so now for the, the story that uh, most changed my mind or my, the way my brain worked or ra- majorly increased my scepticism about the value of published evidence uh, is the story of Tamiflu. And this goes back to 2008, 2009 when um, there was suddenly a huge fear that we were going to be overwhelmed by swine flu, and governments around the world were being encouraged to stockpile oseltamivir, Tamiflu, and uh, the UK government asked the Cochrane Collaboration to update its review on Tamiflu um, to see if it was still, uh, there was any new evidence to include. Um, I'm sitting here with Tom here, who is the main player in this, so my version of events may be (laughs) slightly different, you'll have to tell me. But as I understand it, a Japanese paediatrician contacted the Cochrane group to say, understanding they were about to review and renew their, update their review, uh, to ask them if they had been really appreciative of the fact that of the ten trials that had been used in their earlier review of the data, um, all of them had been funded or performed by Roche uh, employees and uh, only two of them had ever been published in a journal. Uh, The other eight had been in abstract only. Um, so this prompted Tom and his colleagues to think, goodness, we ought to look a bit more at this. So their first step was to speak to the systematic reviewer who had who had reviewed these trials, to ask him if he had the data. He said he didn't. So they then went to the individual trialists. Did they have the data? Uh, they didn't. They said that Tom and his colleagues would have to go to Roche to get the data. The drug company had the data. So Tom uh, started uh, the long journey of trying to get the data from the manufacturer. And at some point in this proceedings, early on-ish, I think, he asked if we might help. And it seemed an important thing to do, so the BMJ joined forces with Cochrane to try to get hold of the data. Um, And so uh, ensued a lengthy, very, very exciting, interesting, um, but certainly for Tom, a huge amount of work, Uh, for us, a a, a very exciting journey um, to try and find the truth about Tamiflu. And um, on the way, we described what we were doing. So this is an article by Deborah Cohen, who was then our investigations editor, about um, the Cochrane's attempts to reproduce an analysis underpinning the use of Oseltamivir. So the Lancet review published prior to this had concluded that Tamiflu uh, did reduce your risk of complications and ending up in hospital if you had uh, an influenza-like illness. Um, And um, the Cochrane really were looking to confirm that. But at some point in the the process, they set themselves a deadline and said, if we don't have the data by that date, we will publish an updated review, which basically says, we do not know, we cannot tell. Having said we we knew, we now know that we don't know, uh, and we're not going to make any conclusions. Uh, So this was the story of that um, approach. And and an excellent article by Tom's collaborator, Peter Doshi, who's now an associate editor on the BMJ, looking at the story behind this this Cochrane review that had concluded that we could not say. And what's rather marvelous, you won't be able to see it, but inside that article is this box with these two columns about whether or not the drug works for complications, to prevent complications of influenza. And these are the people who say it does work, and these are the people who say it doesn't work. So in this column you've got, on the does work side, um, you've got Kaiser, You've got he's the systematic reviewer, you've got the European medicines, you've got CDC in America, you've got Australia, and on the side that it doesn't work, you've got the US FDA disagreeing with the CDC, you've got Japan um, and Canada. But at the very top, if you've got good eyesight, you'll see that both of these top are Roche. So Roche, on the one hand, says it does work for complications, and on the other hand it says it doesn't work for complications, and if you go to this website, it says this website is intended only for Americans. So you've got an extraordinary situation, I mean it is laughable, um, but this is is where things stood. And I I guess this is where things stand for quite a few drugs if only we were to look. So um, at the time we wrote an editorial in the journal saying it is a legitimate scientific concern that data used to support important public health policy decisions are held only by a commercial company and have not been subject to independent external scrutiny. And we started what became our open campaign with Tamiflu as our poster child um, and started doing things like writing open letters to Roche. This one in particular is to John Bell, based in Oxford, uh, uh, which I had a great deal of help writing. I can't pretend this is my own work, but I did sign it. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and it's really saying you, John Bell, as a member of Roche's commercial board, not their scientific advisory board, but he's on their commercial board. I don't know if he still is. He's, he's one of the top doctors in the country, the Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford, um, and he's on Russia's commercial board, which, I mean, in itself is pretty shocking. Uh, but the fact that he's on Russia's board when is behaving like this seemed doubly shocking. And we wrote this letter presenting him with the facts and said that if he re- whether or not he replied, we would publish it, we would prefer to publish it with his reply. Um, he wrote me a very brief email in response saying, Oh, Fiona, is this really what we've got to do? Um, which I. Um, I not know whether I said that. John Bell has responded saying that he has referred the letter to Roche. Okay, a small print at the bottom. So we did get a reply, but nothing of substance. This was one of many open letters, and also on our website, a whole trail of correspondence that Tom and Peter Doshi uh, managed between them and the CDC, WHO, the FDA, um, a whole host of... Uh, regulatory and other bodies, asking them, and of course, Roche, asking them to release the data. They did release the data, and um, this is just a, a sign that we did get quite a lot of news coverage, um, and there should be a picture here of Tom, but I don't know if you appeared on television, or just too modest, Tom, but um, this is Peter Doshi, and we got very good wide coverage of the final result, which was that uh, when the data arrived, eventually just on some... Discs, um, having been told there was an enormous confidentiality and all sorts of reasons why they couldn't share the data. And Tom and his team uh, analyzed the data, found that there was very little evidence of benefit, um, that it had never been compared with placebo, uh, sorry, with um, paracetamol, the alternative in influenza perhaps, and also um, that there were harms that had not been previously reported. So, uh, what did the Tamiflu? Uh, saga do. Um, We found that a vast amount of money has been spent. Poland was the only country that didn't stockpile the drug. Uh, I think they took a look at the evidence and thought it wasn't very sound. But in the UK, um, I'm going to get this figure right, 500 million, have I got that right, pounds, which is um, half of a percent of the NHS's total annual budget was spent on tamiflu. Um, And they then renewed that with 50 million subsequent to that. So, uh, and and stockpiling of the drugs sitting in in, uh, warehouses, not being used at various points. Um, We, I mean, there was a number of different pieces to this investigation. Uh, And I suppose the question we have to ask ourselves, and Tom will be the best to, to tell us this, is have we really achieved, did it really achieve anything? Uh, concrete things, Tamiflu came off the essential drug list, WHO's essential drug list. Um, I, think, I think governments around the world did get a certain message. There was a great backlash from Roche. Um, there was a whole saga about observational studies being better than trials in this context. Uh, Carl and I appeared in front of the uh, Public Accounts Committee uh, where they had a very good discussion and um, Sally Davis, the Chief Medical Officer, obfuscated um, in a way that did not make me proud of our civil service and um, that was a, that was a sort of th- the end of that saga uh, but Tamiflu is still out there and, and i 'm sure it has yet to i mean it will rear itself again it will be found to be uh, su- uh, you know, necessary or needed in some way and so I think the most important thing was not about tamiflu that that is a that, that is one area. The most important thing that it did was to show us uh, what is needed if you really want to get to the truth about a single drug. And I think I'm right in saying, Tom, it was the first, um, it was the first n- real knowledge was, that was gained about CSRs, clinical study reports. That prior to that, we hadn't really understood the, the, what they were, how they were um, kept, who had them, what they would show us. And, and so I feel that it, it's been the sort of progenitor of a whole whole new discipline, which is this much more in-depth systematic reviewing that we are going to need to do uh, if uh, unless we move into a whole new era of transparency where, where these things aren't necessarily anymore. Um, and we began to sort of look more generally at the whole question of hidden data, and this is an editorial uh, from Elizabeth Loder and Richard Lehman. There is an Alice in Wonderland feel to these investigators searching over Hill and Dale, and among the paperwork of regulatory bodies and drug companies, Put together pieces of data that should have been freely available in the first place. So the question is, why are these data not available in the first place? How have we got to a situation where it takes all this absurd effort, and um, and and that's just on one drug? Uh, And we did a number of uh, collections of articles where we asked people externally to send us uh, studies, research, and commentary, and narrative and review on the issue of um, hidden data uh, and what we could do to. Uh, bring these data to the fore, and also discussions about what we mean by data and how we manage confidentiality and anonymization, which are all issues that are still are still ongoing uh, and we published uh, an editorial looking at um, what we would do the journal because i 'm always very keen I think I showed you at the mission statement at the beginning that we want to walk the walk don 't it 's very easy for journal editors to sort of just go around saying everyone should be better and um, just do better, all of you guys, uh, but we always would like, where possible, to do something ourselves to show that we have skin in the game. And for us, this was that we would start um, requiring, if people wanted to publish a clinical uh, trial with us, that they had to commit to sharing their data on reasonable request. Now, arguably, it's not much of a problem for us because we don't get nearly the same number of clinical trials sent to us as the Lancet and JAMA uh, and New England Journal the other big journals um and so we're less reliant on this kind of type of article uh so if people suddenly decided to stop sending us stuff because of this requirement um we would not it wouldn't you know we wouldn't have great holes in our reprint revenue or or you know the the money that comes into journals through sale of clinical trial reprints wouldn't have been so i I mean i say this because that's been the pushback someone said oh well it's easy enough for the bnd to say this um, but actually, what's happened is we haven't seen a drop-off in our trials, and maybe because we don't publish many industry trials, but, but we have found that people seem to be willing to do this, and I think there is beginning to be a shift in the culture. Um, and, and the other thing that, that came out of this, I think, which was brewing in the background, and because of Peter Doshi's connection with the journal and because of the work that he and others had done and John Tom had done on Tamiflu, um, and Carl as well, and, and the whole sort of uh, bubbling up under, under the surface, uh, was this new initiative called Restoring Invisible and Abandoned Trials, or RIOT. And this um, front cover, which is where we, we launched the initiative in the journal, is, is really just showing that, you know, you've got, you've got the published trial, like a proud flag on top of the iceberg, um, and, and everyone thinks that's the totality of, of the evidence base. But underneath the water is this massive uh, other hidden iceberg, and here we all are trying to look for evidence, trying to work out what's going on. Um, in, in, and here's Tom Jefferson and Peter Doshi and um, others trying to look at the underbelly of the evidence base. And um, this, I think, is a really exciting initiative. And the idea is that where a trial has been done and either badly reported, misreported, or not reported, uh, that, these, um, that this initiative can, can, can step into, into play and that the original authors are given an opportunity to redraft their own work or to draft it in the first place if they haven't done that. But if they if they either say they haven't got the time or energy or don't want to do it, or if they don't reply after a certain period, the idea is that others <coughs> can then step in and do this. And we as a journal are committed to publishing the results of those reanalyses in the same way we would as an original analysis. So this is original research. And the famous case that we knew was in the background was the case of paroxetine, the GlaxoSmithKline trial into uh, antidepressants in teenagers, which had already been uh, subject of a lot of concern and public display about uh, suicidal ideation and self-harm in, ch- in children who were taking paroxetine. Uh, so study 329 was already in the in the ether as, a, as something that had been... Uh, proven to have been ghostwritten by an industry-funded author, um, and was already the, the subject of a vast legal case in America, and GSK was fined a large amount of money for uh, wrongfully marketing this drug. Um, in this case, so there was a lot of uh, activity around this drug, and um, and because the files, because of the legal case, the, the data were available to to, to, to be reanalyzed. Uh, and the authors who wanted to do that took it took on the analysis it was a a vast piece of work for them it was also a vast piece of work for uh, my colleagues at the BMJ to make sure that we were really right about this that uh, one of the problems was that the authors themselves had been expert witnesses in this legal case and so were considered to some extent to have a potentially not malicious but a a certain angle on these data and so we insisted that the authors introduce an independent review separate to them, which caused another whole saga of delay. But the data, um, certainly in terms of the adverse effects of this this, this drug in teenagers, um, seem to be quite compelling. So here is the original paper published, still not retracted, of the uh, ghost-written, industry-funded report. And these are adverse effects with paroxetine, imipramine, and placebo. Um, and uh, so a few, a few. Uh, suicidal and, and, and self-injurious events in the paroxetine group but, but not vastly different to imipramine. And then in the smith Smith-Pine Beechum, which is the GSK analysis, um, then you can see rather more suicidal um, ideation and events in the active group. And then this is the RIOT, the Reist Restore trial, uh, which found additional um, definite and possible uh, suicidal and injurious events. Uh, so This this, um, seemed to be an important contribution to the role of hidden data in distorting things. So we published the restored trial, um, and I think, again, that has been quite an iconic contribution to the whole debate. So um, we now move to our own, where we want to take it from here, um, and working with Uh, Carl and his unit in Oxford, we've produced an evidence manifesto, uh, which is looking to improve the development, dissemination, and implementation of research evidence for better health. Um, And, sorry, I'll just say what that says. Uh, We believe that the design conduct reporting of healthcare research should be better served the needs of patients and the public. Better evidence leads to better healthcare. Um, And uh, we have here four things that we are aiming to do which have come out of this evidence manifesto. Uh, We want to expand the role of patients and other users in research and healthcare. We want to increase the systematic use of existing evidence for better decision-making. We want to make research evidence relevant, replicable, and accessible for healthcare professionals, patients, and the public, and to take a stand on financial interest by reducing questionable research practices. And that last thing is something I haven't talked a lot about, but um, we've we've, we've got a big push at the journal to move towards more independent research um, and to try to remove the clear, Irreducible conflict of interest that that that, that commercial uh, players have in in designing and performing and um, reporting their own evaluations of their own products. Um, so this is uh, our Better Evidence campaign, and um, I've talked a bit about some of this. is on this This is where you'll, you'll find this under that tab on the website. Um, I've mentioned Ian and Paul's work on 85% of research going to waste, half results from half of all trials never published, positive results twice as likely to be published. Over four-fifths of sample of Cochrane reviews did not include data on the main harm outcome. Um, A systematic review of 39 studies found no robust studies evaluating shared decision-making strategies, so there's a real absence of the patient voice. Um, The drug industry has been defined for criminal behavior, uh, but little happens to present such problems occurring again because these fines, although they seem enormous to us, are just like a that water off a duck's back for these large corporations. Um, conflicts of interest, questionable research practices, um, and, and manipulation of data happening as routine amongst uh, some of researchers. So, uh, what is the BMJ currently doing? We're working with Oxford uh, Centre for Open Space Medicine on Evidence Live, which is a, I think, a marvellous thing, of course, uh, which <coughs> is an annual meeting where we get together to discuss some of these issues and try to work out better ways of doing things. Um, we've launched the evidence manifesto which i think importantly is intended whether we're succeeding or not we, we need to keep uh, questioning but what was intended as a, as a way of a, a bottom up it's not intended as a kind of that we've got the answers it's intended to try to get as many people involved in finding solutions to these endemic problems within the evidence base um, and uh, and then we're looking at this data sharing so this is the Uh, sharing clinical trial data, restoring invisible abandoned trials, Um, we've got a number of other initiatives, we're working hard on patient partnership because we are convinced that actually the very best type of research is (coughs) research where patients have been involved from the outset and also um, potentially even where patients are leading the research and there's an initiative um, hopefully coming soon in Oxford where um, that patient-led research will be the aim uh, in honor of Rosamund Snow, who was our patient editor that sadly died, um, I'm going to say a year ago, but it may be two years ago. Um, and She was a, 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 a Oxford uh, academic and um, was, a, was a terrific advocate for research um, that, that involves patients from the outset and, and is even led by them. Um, so another number of things, financial interest I've mentioned, and then I get to this campaign for the statins data. Um, so um, let me tell you just before I finish, then a little saga about statins. Um, uh, back in 2013, the BMJ published a um, an analysis, which was prompted by the fact that um, the uh, Oxford group that pulled together the systematic the, the trials on stat on statins, um, had produced a systematic review, which seemed to suggest that as well as statins being useful for people at high risk, people who've had a heart attack, people who've had a stroke, people who either have a family history, and are therefore at high risk of uh, um, heart disease and cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, that um, this uh, treatment would also benefit people who have never had a stroke, never had a heart attack, do not have a family history, are at low risk. Of cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease um, and this review published in the Lancet led to um, uh, Cochrane, uh, its own review coming up with a similar view that actually extending statins to these low-risk people was, a, was what was needed and subsequently NICE, our clinical guidelines group, uh, coming up with the recommendation that yes everyone over 50 would benefit from being on a statin even if they were at low risk of heart disease. Um, Come forward 2013 to to, to this uh, time, we just recently had uh, that indeed further evidence suggesting that people over the age of 75, pretty much everyone over the age of 75 should be taking a standing. But in 2013 we published this critique which was really just saying, the authors of the critique said we just don't believe this is true, we've looked at the benefits. And it doesn't hold true. And we've also looked at something that the other studies haven't really looked at, which is the harms, the small incremental, not necessarily life-threatening, but but quality of life-threatening harms, such as muscle muscle pain, fatigue, um, those sort of adverse effects. Um, so we published this paper and got an immediate complaint from the Oxford group, Rory Collins and his colleagues, saying that we had made an error, that the the paper contained an error, that the uh, estimate in it of adverse effects from statins was overstated and this was going to kill people and, and um, a, a real worry that we had got this wrong. Um, so I invited Roy Collins to write a rapid response, which is our response to everything. He declined to do that and over a period of uh, months we were in correspondence. Uh, and then at some point he went to the press and the Guardian published a, a, a thing saying the BMJ has published this terrible thing and people are going to die because they're not on their statins. Um, By which time, I can't remember quite the chronology, but we published a correction of the article and the question was, should it be retracted? Uh, So we got an independent panel to uh, come and uh, assess for us whether we should retract the paper after a period of weeks. They uh, came to a view that we we shouldn't do that. Um, So to some extent it felt like that was the end of the saga, but I think what had happened in the process was this had begun as an issue about too much medicine. Should these people be on this drug? what were the outcome uh, in terms of benefits, what were the unexpressed um, harms of extending this treatment to so many uh, healthy people. But what it became, in the process for me anyway, of this saga, which was, was very difficult and tricky and lots of people um, involved and, you know, had we done it wrong, had we got it right, that sort of thing feeling very much under scrutiny, what, what it did for me was it made me realize this wasn't only a too much medicine story, it was an open data story because I, I had been completely unaware that this drug which is being prescribed, it's the most commonly prescribed drug in the developed world, class of drugs, um, the data for those decisions were not available. And I just thought, my goodness, this, is, this seems completely wrong. Um, so um, sorry, I realize I'm showing you the wrong slide in telling all this, but um, I'll go back, I'll go forward, I've got these in the wrong order. So um, as a result of that kind of moment of re- revelation for me, uh, it became more of a fight for the data. And also the sense that this Chinese wall, which the Oxford Group have created around their data, Um, where they can all, as trialists, um, analyze each other's data, but that no one independent of those trialists is allowed to look at those data seemed, um, I think, wrong, because there's no uh, external third-party scrutiny. So we began a long attempt to get the data, and um, without much success. Asking the Oxford group to if they would share, asking individual trialists if they would share. We got some who said they would. Uh, in this case, we didn't have a Cochrane group, we didn't have a Tom, we didn't have a Peter, Joshi, uh, we didn't have a Carl, we didn't have that. We didn't have people who would, if we got the data, take it. So there was a slightly different feeling about this. But we just thought we've got to try and work out where these data are. Um, and um, I'm going in the complete the wrong order. Um, anyway, we haven't really done very well. And so here we are back in now 2019, with these amazing claims <coughs> for the benefits of statins in the press, which are based on another systematic review by the same group, the CTT, um, which seems to leap to quite a, 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 a strong conclusion that if all of these older people took statins, 8,000 lives would be saved every year. Um, and uh, here's a, uh, an editorial saying, you're never too old for statin treatment. Um, But it turns out that actually when you look at what's in the study, and I can't, you you won't be able to see this, but if you go to the study and the editorial, um, that actually in the the actual group of people aged over 75, there is very little evidence in that group, and that a lot of this is extrapolation from studies that looked in different age groups. Um, And um, statins have not been shown to reduce cardiovascular events in patients with cardiac or renal failure, inclusion of older participants with these conditions in the trials might be an explanation for the failure to find a benefit in this group, which was borne out by an additional analysis excluding trials conducted in these people. So what's been done is they didn't find the result they wanted. They then excluded people with cardiac or renal failure and found a a slightly better result. And somehow or other that's interpreted to a headline of 8,000 lives saved. Carl kindly has done a look at the actual, actual numbers here. So... The question is, is lives saved a useful way of presenting this? It's very dramatic. It goes for big headlines, but actually what we always say we want to do is we want to look at numbers needed to treat, numbers needed to harm. And this was Carl's, I think it's still work, is it Carl? Um, looking at the data um, and finding that in over 75s without vascular disease, statins do not reduce major vascular events, vascular death or death from many cause. In overcentivized with vascular disease, there's a small um, reduction in vascular events and all mortality. So there's 8,000 lives saved. It's very hard to quite see where that comes from. Uh, and um, other, other evidence suggests that actually there is really a great deal of benefit. So as I say, I'm rambling slightly here, staffing has that effect on me. Um, What I wanted to try to clarify is that the too much medicine story and the hidden data story are like sister and brother, that actually, um, when you look at where there is too much medicine all too often, there is hidden data hiding um, behind it. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I think that's what's going on with statins. and we do want to see the data. Um, And as part of our campaign, we are now tracking the efforts of Tom Jefferson, sounds like a Sounds like a sort of Arctic explorer. Um, Tom Jefferson focusing on trying to get these uh, clinical study reports, the thing we found out about because of Tamiflu, about statins, to try to understand what is the evidence base. Um, can we be sure that large numbers of people and vast amounts of money are, are involved in um, this medicalised prevention, uh, when in fact we might be better off cleaning up our air, cleaning up our... Um, water cleaning up our food uh, to create healthier lives rather than putting people on pills. Uh, so you'll see it says many of requests are still pending, this is this Tom's out there writing to various regulatory bodies to try to get these data, uh, but I, he may be willing to share some news with us, I don't know. Um, so my final slide is uh, one that Elizabeth Loder sent me, uh, which is about... Um, what, is, what does the BMJ want to be? And are we trying to compete? As I'm sure we are at one level with other journals. Or as in 7up, um, do we wish to be anything but Coca-Cola? And I think really that is what we want to be, the un-journal. Thank you very much indeed.